Matthew chapter 1, for those who have missed last week or whenever I mentioned it, we're starting a series in Matthew today. We finished Jeremiah before Easter, and so today we'll launch out in our study of Matthew, and I make no promises as to when we'll be done, but you know how that goes. So we'll be in Matthew for a little bit. Matthew chapter 1. This is God's Word. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abihud, and Abihud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Elihud, and Elihud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Mathan, and Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. This is God's word to us. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word, that it will not return void, that it is your word, it is profitable for our good, for our edification, for instruction, for rebuke, for, for correction. Lord, we pray that you would use it to accomplish all of these things in our hearts and lives today. Unless you empower and, and, and cause us to hear today, we will miss, Lord. So open our ears that we may hear wonderful things from your word. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Please be seated. Well, this is the Gospel of Matthew, the story of the coming promised Messiah on his mission mission to redeem God's people. 
from the curse of the fall. It is the great rescue story, the fulfillment of all the promises that God had made that he would send a Savior in the line of David. In this is the good news of the kingdom in which God would establish a throne on which this one who would come would come as a king forever. And yet, in this message, as with the gospel message itself, there is much that is inverse or upside down of the way that we would write it if we were to write a great rescue story. If we were to write the way things should go, we might do things quite differently because instead of arriving in the glory as we would imagine a king would, Jesus came humbly being born as a vulnerable babe. Instead of coming as a great military leader, he came teaching and healing the sick. Instead of arriving with political power, he came with the power to forgive sins, to cast out demons, and to proclaim a kingdom that is not of this world. And as we see this upside-down pattern, it is not a call for us to greatness, but a call to repentance. Through a plan not to humanly succeed, but to lay down his life as a ransom for many. And that's exactly what Jesus Christ did. He laid down his life in his death to conquer sin and death, and then through his resurrection, conquering them once and for all. Matthew is the gospel's writer, and he writes as one of the 12 disciples who were called by Jesus to follow me when he started his earthly ministry. Matthew writes his gospel primarily for a Jewish audience, and we'll see this unfold as we go through the gospel. That This is who he had in mind as a Jew to reach Jews with the, the message uh, that Jesus is the Messiah. But Matthew was in a unique role. He was not only a Jew, he was a tax collector. So his employer was the Roman government. And as you've heard in many countless Christmas accounts and stories and explanation, you know that the, this created quite a rub among the people because tax collectors were known, well known, to extort more than the fair share of the tax to make themselves rich on the backs of their own countrymen. So you can imagine how people felt toward tax collectors. He was probably despised by most of his neighbors. Yet providentially, this role enabled Matthew to do many things that we don't know of, but one of the things that we do know of is this gospel account. For example, just in the records that we see here, uh, he would have had access to all the records through the, the tax system. So genealogies, that's how land and rights and everything, all the legal stuff, Matthew would have had access to all that. He would also have been able to speak and write and read multiple languages. Aramaic for certain, uh, Hebrew as well, most likely Greek. There may have been others. And so he was uniquely qualified in the writing of this. He was also an eyewitness. He saw the things that he wrote about, and so he writes to us as an eyewitness. His given name was Levi. He served in his role as tax collector in the town of Capernaum, which is located on the northwest side of the Sea of Galilee. And a little plug here for those who want to go to Israel, we'll go to Capernaum and we'll see this small town on the northwest side of the Sea of Galilee. And when he called, uh, or Jesus called Matthew, it was really kind of unexciting. Matthew doesn't record it. Luke and Mark both do, and they both write it as quite a simple experience. It says, and as he, Jesus, passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me, and he rose and followed him. And we read by that because we've heard it so many times without maybe realizing the significance of that. That here is your job, 
And think of the nature of the job. You've probably, because of the nature of your job, precluded that you would ever have any other job, at least not by your fellow countrymen, unless you were going to go do another job for the Roman government. And they wouldn't think much of you if you got up and walked away from your post. So here's a significant event and a clear sign of God's sovereign grace in the life of Matthew. As a Hebrew, Matthew knew not only the Hebrew language, but also the Jewish scriptures and the Old Testament customs. And he, in his gospel, referenced the Old Testament more than any of the other gospel writers. There is strong agreement on what Matthew's purpose was in his gospel. That is, it is to show with certainty that Jesus is the promised Messiah, that he is the one of whom Moses and the law and the prophets did write. And so this opening chapter is part of setting that stage. We'll see this theme among others as we work our way through the chapter. Another theme that comes out is Matthew presents Jesus in his kingly role, speaking of the kingdom of God 32 times in his gospel. We'll see many of these and many other themes come out. But it starts all right here with verse 1, saying uh, the, the origin of his, his start, the book of the genealogy from where we get the word Genesis. It's the book of origins. This is the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, we know that Matthew and Luke both included genealogies in their gospel accounts, although they're different. And if you compare them, you see those differences, particularly from David on. You can see they're following two different trains. And I don't want to say that most, but I think the general consensus is that Luke follows Mary's line and Matthew follows the father of Joseph's line, the legal line through which the rights would have been inferred. Mary would have been the physical line. Uh, but there's more discussion on that that we won't go into today. But the, 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 the genealogies from that point on are different. They're also different in their origin. Luke goes uh, with a Greek audience in mind. That's what he's writing toward. He goes all the way back to Adam to show that, you know, from the very beginning, uh, Jesus has come as uh, the, the, the man, the second Adam, to, to redeem us from the law. And then uh, uh, Matthew begins with Abraham the father of the Jews. Again, his emphasis is on a Jewish audience showing them that this is the promised Messiah, the true son of David. His structure is also unique in the way that he writes. He writes the genealogies in three groups of 14. And if you've ever read any of the other genealogies in the Old Testament, you know that it's much more than 14. If you do simple math, uh, with the genealogies, you know that there's much more than 14. And yet Matthew seems to emphasize that there are 14 generations. Well, there were 14 generations, but there were more than 14 generations. We know that from the other records. So why is he emphasizing the number 14? I want to say this with with clarity and give this caution uh, that we have to be careful when we get into numbers in Scripture. It's very easy to become very fascinated with numbers. There are those who do this. It's called numerology, and, and then every number has this just unending Seamless, uh, uh, in, uh, seamlessly unending uh, reasons or meanings behind the number. I want us to be careful of that. It's not what I want to do today. But I think that we can't skip over the fact that Matthew is very intentionally giving us three 14s here. I mean, he says it repeatedly. He sums it up. There's something about the number 14. And so with that word of caution that I don't want to, to get... Let, let me say this too. Scripture doesn't explain it this way. So this is, this is my teaching on it. And I hope that you understand, you know, anytime a pastor stands in the pulpit, there is assurance that we have when we explain what Scripture says. When we speculate or we look at something that there's not an explanation, 
there's, there's, this, is, this is not a hill I'm going to die on. I hope, hope that that's clear, and I don't want you to take this too far than it is. But I do think I'm convinced of this, or I would just skip over it. I'm convinced of, of what I'm about to tell you. Uh, if you go back and, and, you, and you, you recognize that um, uh, numbers mean something different than they mean to us in, in Hebrew language, in Hebrew culture, and also in Scripture, you see a number of things that are important that stand out. Um, as, as a notion, I also want to point out Matthew's writing under inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So this is not just Matthew's preference, but guided by the Holy Spirit, there are these three numbers of 14. So three numbers of 14, what's the total? Elizabeth, three times 14. 42, very good. Now, I just put her on the spot because, you know, she's super sharp. Uh, three times 14 is 42. So that's the total that are given. She's never going to talk to me again. Uh, there are uh, there are more generations than that. So So what is going on here? Well, let's go all the way back to the numbers three and four. Three and four are both numbers used to express fullness or completeness in the Hebrew uh, culture and language. Three represents that which has a beginning, a middle, and an end. We see this in the Trinity, of course. We see this in the thrice holy God in Isaiah 6. We see this in the threefold Aaronic blessing in number 6. Four is also a number that shows completeness. We see this in Old and New Testament, the four corners of the earth, the four winds of the earth. We also see it in multiples of ten, 40 days, 40 nights in the wilderness for Jesus, 40 days, 40 nights of the flood, uh, 40, uh, 40 years in the wilderness uh, for the, the people of Israel, 400 years in slavery in Egypt. So three and four are numbers of completeness, and when you put those together, you have seven, which is the perfect number in Hebrew thought the number of perfection. It's not just that this is a cultural thing. This is evidenced in creation. Not only do we see it in seven days of the week, but we see it in the cycles of the moon, four sevens as the moon circles the earth. So 14 then is twice this number. It is the idea of a totality of complete perfection. It is duplicate perfection. And there are here six uh, uh, six four or six sevens rather three fourteens or six sevens, forty two right Elizabeth that's forty two okay forty two total uh, of the number that we have, and why are there six sevens? Wouldn't seven sevens be the perfect number? And that's Matthew's point. Matthew's point in all of this is that Jesus is the seventh seven. Jesus is the completeness. He is the fulfillment. Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, who proclaims in His coming, Behold, I am making all things new. And indeed, when He came, He did. He changed everything in His coming. All that had happened in history leading up to His coming was preparation for His arrival. He is the beginning of history as the Creator. He is at the center of history in His redeeming work. And at the end of history, he will consummate and bring all things together in the end. He is the perfect completion to all the promises, all the prophecies, and the unfolding plan of redemption. Matthew is saying to us, Jesus is the Messiah. Now, genealogies were a much bigger deal in biblical times, so much so that Paul had to give warnings about getting too, too into them, kind of like I warned you about don't, don't get too, too far into numbers. Paul gives that same warning about getting off into endless genealogies in a couple of his epistles. Our problem is that we tend to skip over them. I won't ask for a raising of hands, but when you're doing your Bible reading and you get to those long genealogies, or when I was reading this morning, don't raise your hands, but how many of you thought, why is he reading this? Why don't we just skip over it? All these names, they mean nothing. 
So our tendency is we, we tend to make no deal of them, and, and I think it's important to, to consider what they say. Now, there's way more than just the structure. That's not everything. And again, that's not a hill I'm going to die on because that's my teaching on what the understanding. It's many others' teaching. It's not mine uniquely, and uh, there's no, uh, I'm not trying to make that point. It's, many other hold this position on the 14s. Uh, but, 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 you know, what, what, what is communicated here is so much more than just the structure of the genealogy. Who is included in this record? Uh, because these aren't exhausting or exhaustive lists, who Matthew includes is notable. We won't go through all of them. Let me just point out a few. Tamar and Rahab. You remember those stories? Would you have included those in the genealogy of Jesus? Prostitutes with scandalous backgrounds written and included in the genealogy of our Savior. In part, why? To remind us that God forgives what maybe we're not willing to forgive. Ruth, along with both of these ladies, all three of them were foreigners, reminding us not to put confidence in the flesh, be it our own pedigree or someone else's. Matthew mentions Uriah not in the genealogy. He's not listed as a father, but it's, he references him. He takes the time to stop and say that, that you know, this was Uriah's wife who was the mother. David was the father, Solomon. But to note of what happened at that event when David stole Uriah's wife, sent Uriah to the front lines of battle to be killed, reminding us of the immeasurable grace given to us in our waywardness. And for those who were with us recently as we finished up Jeremiah, hopefully you recognize the name Jeconiah. Uh, if you weren't with us, we, we jumped ahead to Matthew to look at this because we saw how even apparently to the, to the Jews, and even as we read Je- uh, uh, J- Jeremiah, it seemed like all hope was lost, that the end had come and there was no hope. And then there's this little ending thing about Jeconiah being raised to, to a, a place of prominence in Babylon. And, you know, what, what was this for? Well, it's here. It's through Jeconiah that the line continues, through Shealtiel. Uh, was he promised that he would not have a son on the throne? Yes, he didn't. Shealtiel wasn't on the throne, but it was through his line that the line to the Messiah continued. So much amazing grace is found in this genealogy of Jesus. And wait, there's more. (laughs) There's this notion as well. And this is a good reminder for us that the absolute sovereign rule of our God throughout history to align all things within his providence so that all of his purposes come to pass. So many of these names represent people who failed miserably. Some of them repented, acknowledged it, and turned. Some of them died in the hardness of their own hearts. Yet God's purposes stood. And they will continue to stand throughout our history, throughout our family trees, and on into the future. The genealogy then closes in verse 16 with, And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. Where Luke directs the lineage of, Jenny, uh, of Jesus uh, likely through Mary, Matthew takes us uh, as, and, and his Jewish readers through the legal side of the father. He doesn't call Joseph his father. He was his legal father. He wasn't his physical father. But he calls him rather the husband of Mary. And it was through the father's line that all the legal rights were given. So even though he is not the flesh of Joseph, Given that Mary conceived through the Holy Spirit, Jesus is the rightful heir of Joseph's line. So he was born in the legal line of David through Joseph via Solomon. If you go back and trace the, the genealogies, you'll see this is where they divide. He's born in the physical line of David through Mary via Nathan. 
And so when we compare those two, the bottom line is Jesus is the promised son of David, the savior of God's people, and the Messiah who was promised from long ago. In verse 18, Matthew begins the account of Jesus' birth, describing here, rather than the details of the birth, the, the relationship between Mary and Joseph, that they were betrothed, which, as you've heard in, again, many countless Christmas sermons, the idea of betrothal is, is, was more something more significant than our idea of engagement. Uh, it wasn't just, you know, engagements, kind of like serious dating with a ring. Uh, betrothal was actually a legal uh, act where the, uh, the woman and the man would stand and pledge in a legal sense, give a pledge to be married to one another. Uh, but they wouldn't live together. The wife or the woman would remain in their parents' home until the day of the wedding banquet when the bridegroom would come with his party, his friends, and so forth and family. They would come to the home of the bride, receive the bride. Then they would have the wedding banquet. And uh, in most cases, the ceremony was, was much shorter than our wedding ceremonies. And then following the banquet, following the celebration and so forth, they would go to live together and consummate the marriage. So it's in this in-between time, this time of betrothal before they're living together, that in verse 18, where we find that Mary is to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Now, Luke's gospel tells us all that happened, how uh, Gabriel came and explained all of this to Mary, giving her uh, some understanding of what had happened. No doubt, she still had to be really befuddled by the whole thing. I mean, this is quite a unique event. Matthew doesn't get the visit until later, or I'm sorry, Joseph. But Matthew focuses our attention on Joseph here in his gospel. It says that when Matthew found out, he's, it seems that he only finds out that she's pregnant. He doesn't find out the explanation until later that evening. And so he resolved to divorce her quietly, verse 19 says, because he was a just man and didn't want to shame her. In other words, Joseph knew that because he wasn't the father, what? Somebody else had to be, and that meant that Mary was not faithful. I think many men would have reacted quite differently than Joseph did. I think many would have been spiteful and angry. We might even say rightly so. But the word here for just can also be translated, it might be in your translation, the word righteous. Those are interchangeable translations for this word that's used indicates that, that, that Joseph showed mercy toward her. I think today there are many Christians who think that rightness or righteousness gives them the right to be spiritually obnoxious or even abusive. We hear reports. I feel like it's almost every week now of pastors either being accused of or having to step out of ministry for this kind of like overbearing attitude. And it's, uh, there's, there's, there's studies being done on, on kind of the psychology behind it. Why is it that we want leaders to be these tyrants, and you know, it's, I think it's embedded in our, our culture beyond, beyond just simply the, the church. I think it's in our American culture as well. But this should not be of the people of God. <laughs> this is not what we want in our leaders. Righteousness should be reflected in our mercy, not in our belligerence, our haughtiness, or our unkindness. Joseph was merciful, and he chose to protect Mary from disgrace. Don't miss that even though, no doubt, Joseph was hurting. Joseph had to be just confused, felt completely betrayed. And God calls him righteous or just because why? He protected Mary from disgrace. You want to know what righteousness and justice looks like? There is an example. That night, however, he didn't have to wait too long. An angel visits Joseph Gives him an explanation of what's actually going on. He says to him, Joseph, son of David, by the way, 
Matthew complete, continually uh, uh, notes son of David, son of David. He does this with Joseph here throughout this first chapter. He's pointing his Jewish readers to, remember, to, to remind them of the, 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 the genealogy of Jesus. Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. D.A. Carson points out of this verse, he says, The angel's opening words, Joseph, son of David, ties this pericope or section to the preceding genealogy. It maintains interest in the theme of the Davidic Messiah by pointing out the, the note of his genealogy. And then from Joseph's perspective, alerts him to the significance of the role that he is to play. And often we put a lot of emphasis on the role of Mary. I appreciate the fact that Matthew draws our attention to Joseph. Now, there's a lot that's left out. We don't have a record of conversation with Mary and Joseph. Somehow, Joseph found out that Mary's pregnant, but there's no record of, of, of any explanation of this. Uh, we can guess, you know, that, that either she was hiding because of shame, or it, more likely, I think, her family would have been hiding her. Maybe they were hiding her from Joseph because they suspected him of being the father. You could see how that something like that might have happened. We can only speculate. But it's clear that Joseph didn't know He didn't know the reason why. And so it's in this explanation that he gets the answer. And in this explanation, he's both comforted and informed. He's comforted that Mary has not been unfaithful to him. This is of the Holy Spirit. And he is informed that she is to bear a son and they are to name his name Jesus or give him the name Jesus. Additionally, we see that reference again to the Davidic line. Uh, Joseph, for for the Jewish readers to know this is the son, this child will be born in the line of David. Now, the explanation of his name is Jesus is, is from the root for, for, the, for the, the name Joshua, meaning God will save. Uh, and that is, he's coming to save his people. He's coming to save the people of God. And we know that the name of Jesus is significant. We know this from Scripture. But this doesn't mean that the word Jesus is magic, or that we're to use it like a lucky charm or anything like that. What is the significance of the name of Jesus? Well, Philippians 2 tells us that God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The name of Jesus represents who he is and what he has accomplished so that it is the person behind the name where the power and the glory lies. So while we don't use it like a lucky charm, we don't take the name of Jesus in vain either. The name of Jesus represents who he is, his saving work, and the glory that is due to him. And here the angel also points out that he is going to save his people from their sins. This is the hope of the people of of God since the garden, since sin entered the world. Ever, Ever since sin came in, redemption was necessary. There was no way an ordinary person could achieve this for himself or for others. So all throughout the Old Testament was this promise of the Lord's salvation that he would deliver his people, that he would deliver his people. They saw this both, the promise both in word and they saw it in action through the sacrificial system. The psalmist proclaims this at the end of Psalm 130 where he writes, O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. We saw this throughout the, the, the book of Jeremiah. Even though the majority of Jeremiah was a, was a message of, of, of judgment, there was also sprinkled throughout the hope, the hope of the new covenant, particularly in chapters 31 on. And this is why Jesus was born, to save his people from their sins. 
Matthew then adds that this also fulfills one of the many prophecies that were written about the Messiah. In verse 22, he says, All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So Matthew is telling us as his readers that these events fulfilled Isaiah's prophecy. Uh, there are those who want to make a big deal about the Hebrew word that's used for virgin in Isaiah, saying that it can be translated as young woman, which is, is, is fair. But we, are not have, we don't have to guess about the intent of the author's reading because Matthew exegetes Isaiah for us. He explains it to us. We let Scripture interpret Scripture. And here, Matthew informs us that the, the virgin birth of Christ fulfills the prophecy of a virgin conceiving in, Matthew, or in Isaiah chapter 7. Therefore, the miraculous conception of a virgin that he prophesied comes to pass in the person of Mary to fulfill the prophecy. The prophecy, though, was not only that he would be born miraculously, but another name is given. He's not only the one who saves his people from their sins, but he is God with us. He is Emmanuel. So Jesus is born in the line of David. He has come to save his people from their sins, and he is God in the flesh, the divine Son donned a human body, born in weakness of flesh, born under the law to live as we have lived. In his life, he perfectly obeyed that he remained an unblemished sacrifice in his death. His righteousness then becomes our righteousness, and he dies to take our judgment so that we can be saved from our sins. But it is God alone who saves. We receive by faith alone uh, what is this gracious gift that he will forgive our iniquity and remember our sins no more. It is all by faith. We contribute nothing to it. God alone saves. Well, Joseph woke up, did all the angel instructed to him. He takes Mary in marriage, but it says he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. I'll just point out there that it says he knew her not until. Uh, that implies that there uh, was a knowledge or knowing of Mary, intimacy with Mary, after Jesus was born which uh, debunks the Roman Catholic teaching of the perpetual uh, virginity of Mary. We know from Scripture, too, that that, uh, Jesus had other siblings as well. And so uh, Joseph followed uh, all the the details the angel gave him, names him, gives him the name of Jesus, just as he was told to do. And uh, this sums up the, the beginning story of the birth of Jesus. So this is the fulfillment of the promise, the promise that came through covenant before the heavens and the earth were made, We're told in Ephesians 1 about how this happened before time began, that our triune God purposed and covenanted together in triunity to carry out this great rescue plan with the Father having blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, so that now this promise made before time began is given to us by grace through faith, that we might reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, Colossians 2. Jesus is our everything. He is the fulfillment of the promise. He is the rescuer uh, who comes to, to bring us out of the kingdom of darkness. He is the one who has atoned for our sins. And yes, He is the coming judge who has promised to declare no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus.
Today, He invites us to this table that He has set before us to taste both the promise and the fulfillment that the Lord is good, that His mercies know no end, that His faithfulness reaches to the heavens. He does all that He promises, and we can trust Him to complete what He has started in us. The table declares to us the sufficiency of Christ's death on our behalf. It declares to us the forgiveness of all of our sins. And it declares to us the hope of the resurrection, that in his death, he defeated death forever, what we just celebrated at Easter. The table is both a reminder of what he has done and a foretaste of what is to come in the new heavens and the earth. That is, we look back at his atoning work and we take comfort in the present that we are cleansed from all of our unrighteousness. And we look forward to the future, to the hope of perfect contentment, happiness, and fulfillment in Jesus. The table proclaims what uh, a hymn that I almost had us sing today, but I held back because I know you all would have thought it was weird. A hymn we normally don't think of in the month of April. But joy to the world. Joy to the world. The Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room and heaven and nature sing. No more let sin and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings known far as the curse is found. The blessings of the promise that Jesus has fulfilled are now ours. They permeate every crevice and every corner of our lives. They permeate every crevice and corner of this entire universe far as the curse is found. Far as the curse is found. Let's pray.